The following Dharma talk was given on retreat led by Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I mentioned this morning that um, quite naturally human beings, sentient beings, when we're not overwhelmed by the details of life and basic survival, then the basic feeling in the heart of being a living being that doesn't it's not about being good or bad, it just means being a living being, having a conditioned mind, a conditioned heart, means we're often, most often, pushed around by our creature comforts, as I mentioned this morning, you know, just these beastly needs to be warm or desires to be warm, to be safe, to receive affection. And uh, it's really important that we don't make that bad. It's just about recognizing that that is the way it is, that the mind, the heart is conditioned that way to want to get rid of knee pain, to want to be with my tribe, the people that are like me, and feeling uncomfortable when we're in a, you know, in a setting where we don't feel like we belong. So these things generally push our heart around, and when we do have that space to be reflective, this very simple truth becomes recognized, which is it's hard <laughs> being pushed around by our creature needs, like just the need to be safe, the need to be warm. It's a challenge having to respond to these needs all the time. It's not like we can just shut them off, or at least, you know, not for long. They, they tend to reemerge. And then part of this attempt to deal with this problem of being a beast, being a creature with needs, imagine needs, real needs, not sure what the difference is, but there are needs that are clamoring to be addressed. And so then we, we start to think about this and we start telling ourselves stories about a mark who has met all his needs, right? That's all of our becoming stories and how I'm going to get really efficient. I'm going to get really competent. I'm going to rally the forces. I'm going to get the money together. I'm going to get healthy. And then I'm going to set in motion a life that I'll finally be in that place where I feel safe, where I feel comforted, where I feel okay. And uh, this is also, it's a kind of a, it's a different kind of ride than just immediately dealing with, you know, my desire for something sweet or my desire to get rid of knee pain or my desire to be a little warmer. It has more of a, you know, we can really, when we, when our mind paints a picture of what might be possible for me, because it's an abstraction, right? It's not, doesn't have to be based in reality. I can paint a picture that's quite inspiring, 
you know, even though I'm 57, sometimes I still have a thought like, I'm going to get into really good shape. And I think about that sort of feeling I always had as a younger person about, and, and I was an athlete, so it's like really this becoming, like maximizing, what could, what could this body do? How strong, how fast can this body become? And uh, so it's this like, or how much knowledge, how much power, how much. So we paint these pictures in our mind where we become our version of what's perfect, what's beautiful. And it doesn't have to be grand because for you, perfection may not be grand. It may be very ordinary. You might have a cabin up on the North Shore, you know, really simple. No plumbing, no... Or it might be, you know, who knows what it is, but it's one kind of story or one kind of trip or another that we have. And these stories, they inspire a lot of joy, a lot of energy. That's why we we get started on them. Until at some point the bottom gets pulled out. And it's not that it was a bad story. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't follow through or do our best to follow through with that vision, that story. It just means it was never about becoming happy like it originally seemed when we started telling that story about getting into shape or finding my perfect love or finding Buddhism, becoming a, being able to sit and have a concentrated set. So we have these creature comforts then when we realize the you know how never ending they are we start thinking about it and we start imagining being free of creature comfort comforts by mastering life in some way some vision of ourselves reaching a lo- level of competence where we imagine that the ordinary creakiness of the body and you know fickleness of the mind that were beyond that. And like I say, these stories as enticing and energizing, inspiring as they can be, always um, betray us, I guess, or it's a false promise. This is true in politics, it's true in religion, spiritual circles, it's true in relationships, it's really true and anything we get idealistic about. Because it's all, all of these idealistic stories are based on a somebody who when getting something will be happy in some lasting or meaningful way. And there's so many assumptions behind that story that go unexamined that, you know, don't, uh, those assumptions don't line up with reality. So the story can never deliver what it seems to promise. And after enough of those boom and bust cycles of you know, having a great story, feeling some energy, running with it, sometimes for years, of course, even decades, we can, some particular story, you know, it changes, it evolves, but kind of keeps us going, makes us feel alive, brings in hope and, the energy to do what's next. 
that uh, if we are fortunate enough, doesn't sound fortunate, but if we're fortunate enough and there are a number of boom and busts, then uh, we get, what uh, becomes alive in us is a, a wholesome kind of humility and a wholesome mistrust of the stories, the hopeful stories that we can tell. And of course, before that, you know, we might play around a lot with nihilistic stories. Nothing matters, some version of nothing matters, I give up, it's no good, it's hopeless. But eventually that gets pure, that that gets seen too as uh, a story that doesn't help, doesn't go anywhere. And if we're fortunate, we feel, become more humble and sort of (laughs) the idealism is beaten out of us. It's one of the advantages of getting older. And if we don't get lost in depression or some, you know, obsession with, you know, some little bubble that we avoid our life in, then that more that sort of stronger quality of humility can lead to a more uh, earthy and grounded aspiration to understand and to approach our life, to approach the moment really, with a sense of, well, what is this? What is this experience of being a human being? What is this experience of having a mind and body? And the the real transforming moment comes when that sense of humility, knowing that we don't know, meets up with some teachings from somebody like the Buddha that tells a story, and it's a story when we first receive it, that freedom is possible, that this heart, this mind, can be unburdened, can be wise, can be kind, and can live the life that we have, the circumstances that we have, in a way that's not heavy. It's like uh, a joy to do what's next, not a burden to do what's next, or not doing what's next in order to get to something down the road. So that's what we mean by freedom, like freedom to live the life we have without needing anything in return. So we get this little input that on some level, maybe not very deep initially, makes the mind curious. So there's a humility of knowing that we don't know and at the same time hearing this lineage of women and men who tell us that real happiness, real love and wisdom is possible and that all the ingredients we need are right here in this life, in this heart, in this mind. So we have, we already have what we need, it's here, 
And actually, the, another thing they say is this humility of knowing that we don't know the way is actually a prerequisite for doing this work, right? Because we have to, in a way, start over. So instead of taking our cue of how to be happy from our habit energy, we're taking our cue from our direct experience, like directly seeing what leads to more stressful states, heavy states, what leads to more enlivened and light states. This is a dynamic that Joseph Goldstein talks about in uh, Insight Meditation, one of his books. The chapter is called Purpose, Effort, and Surrender. He says at the beginning, how can we have a goal in practice feel inspired by a sense of purpose and direction, and yet avoid becoming caught in a, ta- in a tangle of straining and striving? This is a crucial question for anyone on a spiritual path. But because we need a story at this point, we need a story. How No one is going to sign up for a five-day retreat unless they have a compelling story that brings them here. So it's good at the beginning of our retreat to reflect on, well, what was that story that brought us to this retreat? I mean, it might be really mundane, like I haven't done a retreat for a while, and I'm the person who does retreats. Right. So the combination of I haven't done one for a while and my identity is somehow connected to being the person who does retreat. So therefore, I guess I should sign up for a retreat because I'm the person who does retreats. Or I'm the person who's ser- I'm a serious practitioner. I'm not one of these sort of lightweight Buddhist practitioners. I actually do retreat practice. So I better do retreat practice. So it's interesting how really big things in our life sometimes the story that got us there may be when we bring it out into the light of day, not something that we respect or that makes much sense. So, but that's okay because we can always tell ourselves another story. You know, there's, it's not like we're ever done just because we told ourselves one story and now we see it and we don't really believe it. Well, we just well, try another story. So why am I here? So not why did I come because I'm already here. But why am I staying here? No. What do I, what do I want to do at this time? It really matters. The story we tell really matters, and how much integrity. And you know, initially, it's like I'm here to get something. That's that creature comfort thing. Or I'm here to become something. That's that second strong pattern that we have. Or from this place of humility, knowing that we don't really know what's up, I'm here to understand. I'm here to understand, you know, like as a laboratory to directly learn something about the causes for stress and the causes for release from that stress. So then it's, it's, you see, it's a really grounded story. 
I'm here to deepen my understanding. I know that can sound a little idealistic. So we have to add this other part. I'm here to deepen my understanding by connecting, feeling, being a little bit more awake and a little bit more honest, a little bit more fearless about what's moving, what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing, in order to, through tracking lived experience, in order to have a better understanding of what, how it is that suffering, stress, false states arise, how it is that release arises in this heart, in this mind. And this, the motivation for deepening understanding is because our mind has been infected with the possibility of freedom, right? the unconditional release of the heart. And initially, this is a little idealistic, right? The stories of our teachers and our, the Buddha and other people in the tradition or just what you've heard from other friends who practice and hopefully eventually from our own direct experience of the freedom that's possible. You know, the times when Arjun Sumedho tells such a great story, so, so many of them of course, but one in particular I'm thinking of that I just read recently about some of the early years in Thailand and uh, uh, Ajahn Cha, his teacher, a Thai person, Buddhist monk um, in Northeast Thailand would give these three hour plus Dharma talks to the lay people. And being a junior monk, he was expected to sit there, you know, in the background, perfectly still, sort of being the model monk but he didn't understand anything and it kind of drove him crazy. And he'd get just fuming, fuming. You know how it is with our habit energies. I'm all the way here trying to develop my mind and I can't even meditate because I have to sit here and you know, basically be the stooge on the stage while my teacher gives a Dharma talk that I can't even understand because it's in a language that I don't speak. And I could be back in my little hut practicing and becoming enlightened, right? That becoming idea. And he'd say, you know, he'd be there and he'd just just about to lose it, getting so angry and so disappointed and like feeling stupid about the choices he's made. And then right when he was about to burst, Ajahn Chow would look at him and say something like, with a lot of love, are you all right? (laughs) But the interesting thing is, in that moment, all of that incredible weight that his mind had built up would just evaporate. So it's really interesting. This is what this is what really strengthens the faith in humility, knowing that we don't know, and the possibility of a freedom we can really comprehend now, because we, all of us, probably have had some moments where we did feel really tied up in knots, really, and it may have been in a set meditation period, but could have been any time. And then something shifted, the view in the mind, the way the mind related shifted, and then 
what we call ourselves, one moment felt very burdened, overwhelmingly so, and then in the next moment, free of that same burden. In a way that just doesn't make sense because from the previous story of being burdened, the, the way the mind constructs that reality is that I'm burdened because of this reality in my life. And then the next moment it's gone, but that reality hasn't shifted. Same, same condition, same circumstances, but no stress. So you see how that reinforces the sense of humility. I don't have a clue about the causes of suffering and the causes of release. Or I have a very little clue. Like knowing that we don't have a clue is actually a clue. Right? It t- it's something. We're not completely ignorant when we know our previous notions about what leads to happiness we don't believe anymore. It's like we may still watch a lot more TV than we should or need to watch or eat foods that we don't really need to eat, do other things because in the past we had a story that we'd be happy if we did all of that. We still may do it, but most of us at least know when we take the time to be reflective, to be awake, we know enough to say, you know, I'm pretty clear that that's not going to lead to any meaningful happiness. You might have an amazing piece of chocolate cake at home when you go home tonight. And it's not, there's not necessarily anything inherently wrong in eating that. But from a <clears throat> you know, dharmic perspective, thinking it will make you happy in a meaningful way is ignorance, right? Because it doesn't align with reality that it will make you happy in a meaningful way. It will be what it will be. Either you have a lot of lacerating guilt while you eat it, <laughs> which if you're going to eat that piece of chocolate cake, you know, it would be nice to abandon that before you eat the chocolate cake because that doesn't, it's not like you're better because you have lacerating guilt eating the chocolate cake. But, so what we'd like to do if we're going to eat that chocolate cake is to eat it without any expectation that the pleasantness of it is anything more than the actual experience of the pleasantness of it. It's just that. And then, of course, if there are any natural consequences that get set in motion for us, you know, some people maybe are allergic to chocolate or gluten or whatever, well, then that will be part of the package. There will be the pleasantness, maybe, if, if you like chocolate cake and the consequences on the body, whatever they might be, quite insignificant or quite significant, depending on people's physiology, but nothing more. And so that's a, that, so then, that freedom from conditions, right? So it's like the voice of wisdom is saying, so the conditions really don't matter? You know, having chocolate cake, not having chocolate cake, the place, the room being really cold or nice and toasty when I get home. The cat's vomited. The cat hasn't vomited on the carpets. Doesn't matter. Is that matter? Is that true? So this is this place of humility where 
our former ideas about happiness, like having the creature comforts we want or becoming the person we think we want to be, now there's a healthy distrust. We can get those creature comforts and there's some immediate short-term experience that comes with getting or not getting the chocolate cake or the warm bed or the whatever. But we, it's like they say now in, in psychology, you know, we always end up back at our set point. I'm back, right back here. You know, we have a delicious dinner and then we realize, yeah, but I'm still me, <laughs> you know, wanting something more or irritated by the world or, you know, whatever our set point whatever our set attitudes, common attitudes are. We have a really bad day and it's just a bad day. We have a really good day, it's just a good day. So, you know, in terms of making this this dynamic between effort and surrender is really what this little chapter that Joseph Goldstein wrote is about. You know, effort is this sense of um, becoming somebody or getting some sense experience that we want. And surrender is understanding the limitation of that. And we need this dynamic of both, right? With more and more wisdom from our own experience. Like, how do we dance with energy and effort and surrender? What does that look like? And so this is what this third story is about, like understanding, the effort to understand and surrendering. You know, it's like we're sloughing off all the time the person who needs to understand. So there's a desire to understand. There's a gaining competence, like all the supporting causes for understanding, like the mind being stable and clear, concentrated, suitable friends, suitable conditions like we have at Common Ground, good information, right? So we're making the effort to line up all the suitable conditions. It's not that different than strategizing how we're going to get chocolate or how we're going to you know, get the best place in the meditation hall or save all our shows that we're missing this week so we can watch them on New Year's Eve or whatever. But now, because we're more interested in this deepening of understanding, coming out of humility, coming out of our mind being infected with the Buddha's and all of our ancestors telling us that, you know what? We can be happy no matter the conditions. We can be free no matter the conditions. We can be a loving, competent, skillful human being even at the time of death, even losing those we love, even when good things happen or bad things happen. The heart can be free, can be light, engaged, Right, so we've we've have some sense, some sense that this is possible. This might be possible even. 
And it has something to do with understanding or misunderstanding, putting aside misunderstanding. We don't really know much more than that. But now we have some energy, right? We have some, okay. And so there's this dance of effort and surrender. Let me read a little bit more what Ajahn Sumedho, a Western monk, if you don't know him. So there's some balance between effort and surrender or some very dynamic place that we're looking for between effort and surrender. And we can think of patience as being that place, but you could use a different word too. So this, Because a lot of times we think of patience as a kind of dead, and I'm just going to, you know, I'm here, but I'm not really here. I'm just waiting it out. But instead we want something that's really bright, like being patient. And that's that discerning quality. When we're patient, then we can discern something that we can't discern when we're impatient. When we're patient with conditions, we can discern something that we can't discern when we're impatient with conditions. So there's an equipose here. So Joseph Goldstein says, without that fire of effort, nothing happens. We simply live out and act out all the old habit patterns of our conditioning, right? like becoming and creature comforts. It is extremely difficult to step outside these habits to discern in a clear, fresh way what is actually occurring and to make choices based on wisdom rather than our reactive conditioning. But effort alone is not enough. Valuable as this quality is, it can also lead us astray if if it is overdeveloped. We can become attached to the goal of enlightenment and become very ambitious with a kind of spiritual competitiveness or strong self-judgment about our progress. We can strive and strain with an excessive urgency that can become desperation. Wanting something to happen right now gets in the way of seeing. It leads to frustration, disappointment, even despair. Right? In these stories that we tell ourselves, we like them because they come with energy, but then we get seduced by the story of progress, basically. He goes on and says, recognizing, often through painful personal experience, the difficulties that come from such a striving, expecting mind People discard the notion of a goal altogether. This, is, this also is a mistake. If we abandon a sense of a goal, we become attached to the idea that practice is simply becoming aware and mindful in the moment without any sense of destination, development, or deepening realization. Then we lose a source of tremendous energy and inspiration. Right, so we need this sense of direction because it gives us energy. And without that energy, we're really, um, we're still going to get 
pushed and pulled by those old habit energies because they offer us the promise of, it may not be true, the promise, but they offer us something like chocolate cake. Because of the way my mind's conditioned, it seems to offer me in some meaningful way something of value when I think about that or whatever it is that gets our attention. So we need a different story that, in a, in a way, in a sense, is a counterweight to those old habits of the mind. A good TV show. Something funny. Something witty. What could it be? There's got to be something, you know, that to sort of bring my mind some energy. So we need the mind, this sort of more relative, conditioned mind, the mind that does feel oppressed, heavy by life, because of life, it needs, it does need some medicine. But we should give it medicine that actually works instead of medicine that, you know, like a placebo, but, you know, it doesn't really change anything. And that's where aspiration or goal comes in. And then there's this dynamic between that goal, that aspiration, and surrender. And this is what we can be reflecting on this week. I mean, we have our mind to keep looking at. And notice at those times during the days ahead, tonight, right now, maybe, when there is no sense of goal, no sense of aspiration, there's no story that has energy in your mind. So you're just kind of going through the motions because you're too embarrassed to walk out, (laughs) to leave the retreat. You know, I'm out of here. So you're here because it's too humiliating to say, forget it. But the mind has lost its sense of purpose. Now, this is not uncommon. So don't feel badly if you're in this place several times during the retreat. Because when we find that we're in this place, when mindfulness reflects back to us, oh, you don't know what you're doing. (coughs) Hopelessness is like this. Doubt is like this. Despair is like this. It's really good to acknowledge it because otherwise what we tend to do, you know, fits and starts, is like, well, I'll show myself. And we make this kind of effort to get something from our practice that ends up being counterproductive. You know, so we might strive really hard and then we get a headache or then we get exhausted and then we feel even worse. Like, I gave it my all and all I got was a headache. You know, I gave it my all, you know, and all I got was these conditions right now. Nothing. So why... In the future, should I bother giving it my all, being wholehearted, being committed? So how to, um, in a way, what we're doing is we're, one of the great benefits of being more awake, more mindful, more honest, is we'll notice the flavor of freedom for no good reason. We won't necessarily understand its causes, like 
why the mind is light, why the mind is expansive, why the heart is full in a wholesome sense, full of quality of connection, belonging, fearlessness. We won't understand it, but there it is. right? So it's like, I know what's possible. And we see it in other people too, or at least we sense it in other people. You know, their fullness, their lightness, their responsiveness, their kind of energy and nimbleness and freedom. So we know what they've got a life, and yet here they are, seemingly unburdened in this moment. So, you know, and it's nice when these traditions of, you know, basically people passing one generation to the next, on passing on to one generation to the next, the possibility of real happiness, no matter the conditions. And not just no matter the conditions, but precisely because the mind, the heart, trained itself not to look to the conditions for that happiness. Right, And this is what helps us begin to see why patience might be a good word for the kind of training we do. Because in a way, even in our ordinary definition of patience, it's, it's a practice and not being confused by the presenting conditions of the moment. Because we can be patient with them. Right, So if it's a little cold, we can be, instead of, having to get away from the cold, we can be, what we call, we can be patient with the cold. Now on a deeper level, and this, this refers to the article I sent everybody, I think everybody got it. Um, if you didn't, let me know and I'll make sure you get the email. But in the chapter in Ajahn Sushito's book on the Paramis, The Ten Beautiful Qualities of the Heart, the book you can just download online, Paramis, Ways to Cross Life's Floods by Ajahn Sushito. And uh, he has a chapter on patience, which is one of the ten paramis in that book. And then one of the sections in that chapter is called Releasing the Mind with Patience. And so one of the things he talks about being patient with is being patient with intention. Because because of the way our minds are conditioned, we're literally going to, what's going to arise in our mind is one intention after another. Seemingly, or sometimes it seems that many intentions at the same time, but basically it's one intention after another. Sometimes the same intention just follows the previous intention. But we have these intentions, the intention to move my body, you know, the intention to want to be out of here the intention to want to be the best person in the room, the intention to you know, think this, to worry about that, to plan. Lots of intentions. And so, in a sense, our option is to be confused by the intention, take them personally, and feel as though I have to do something personally about each intention that I notice in my mind. Even saying, I shouldn't be having that intention 
is a way to personally address that intention. Right? But there's another option with intention other than getting pushed around by our intentions. We can't stop them because they've been conditioned into the mind. The mind is conditioned to be having one intention after the next. But we can be patient with intention. Patience means understanding we don't have to do anything just because I have these dispositions, these tendencies, these intentions, these about-to moments arising in my mind, in my heart, doesn't mean I have to move my body. doesn't mean I have to plan. And it doesn't mean that planning is bad. It just means the mind is realizing the freedom of not having to do anything with the intentions that are there. It's really we want to recast this as a kind of freedom. We can have a neurotic mind with all kinds of crazy intentions, lustful intentions, hateful intentions, stupid, you know, like I want to be, you know, win the lottery intentions, you know. God, what would I do if I had a billion dollars? You know, these sort of funny things that arise in our mind. And just because they arose in our mind doesn't mean we have to do anything about it. It's such a relief to just let intention, which is really the, you know, when we talk about all the mental activity, the part of all mental activity that's most seductive is what we call intention. Because it's, in a sense, what seems most personal. It's that volitional energy that arises. So it really feels, when a strong intention arises, it really feels like Mark is telling Mark, you've got to do this, you should do this. This is what needs to be done now. That's what it looks like or feels like in the mind, sounds like in the mind. But can we see that, notice that, and be patient with it? You know, it's like some of you who have been parents know how kids can just be quite demanding. You know, I want this, what about this, why does this happen? And, you know, parents learn how to, you, it's kind of um, uh, amazing to see some parents, they can be quite masterful at sort of being there for their kids, you know, not not just shutting down and not responding, but somehow conveying the message that I don't, I can't, I'm not going to respond to your stuff right now, you know, to all of your requests, all of your demands. That's not what's happening now. And we can have that same sort of skillful, parental, loving energy with the mind. Because the parent, you know, when the child's in that way, it may not even be about the particular question that they're asking. I remember I had this relatively traumatic experience in third grade with Sister Cecilia, who I think was in her late 80s at the time. She was her th- our third grade teacher and uh, Catholic nun. And uh, I, I had some of this kind of nudgy energy, restless energy, 
fidgeting energy. And sometimes it acted itself out in terms of like asking questions I, don't, I didn't really need to ask. And one day, at the end of the day, she just nailed me. Because I did that. I forget. It was something about homework, and maybe she had just told us a little bit ago. And I bet she had some sense that I didn't need to ask the question. I just wanted to be seen. You know how that is sometimes. You just make noise or do something so that we feel like we're alive or we belong or, you know, we're being seen. And... Uh, <laughs> She <laughs> probably at the end of her rope. And she did, you know, she was just did something really mean to me. But it's just that uh, the opposite of a skilled parent. Like how can we see exactly what's going on in the mind, like that child that just wants to be seen? Because that's what intention is. It's just the force of the mind that just wants to be seen, just wants to be dealt with. Like... And in, when, when an intention arises in my mind, it just wants to be seen as real. I'm real. Please acknowledge me. I'm real. So that's why even when we're afraid of intentions, like we have to suppress them, at least the intention feels acknowledged, right? Because the mind is afraid of it. Like, no, I can't do that. That would be wrong. I might get caught. People would see me. Don't. Go away. <laughs> Leave me alone. But being patient with intention, being patient with the activity of the mind, it's more about um, no resistance. Like letting that energy of the mind move without standing in its way, but also without letting it or having it drive us somewhere, move us somewhere. So that's why in Buddhism, like, we use a phrase or a word like emptiness in a number of ways. Can the activity of the mind move? Can we be patient with the bodily movements, right? The energetic movements, the sensa- movement of sensation. Can we be transparent or empty with the movement of sound? Maybe an irritating sound or maybe an irritating scent. People maybe war, scent, not knowing that we're a scent-free environment or something like that, or somebody's doing something that we think is wrong. So there's that intention to want to do something about it. I should, somebody should. Well, why can't that intention just be what it is? It's a disposition that gets strummed, right? There are conditions in the moment that strum that string of conditioning in the mind, that tendency. And then it reverberates, right? It's just a vibration. Now, can the mind be empty so that that vibration just vibrates until it's, but it's not bumping up against anything, whatever it is. This is true with more positive kinds of things, like a hope, feeling hopeful feeling like your mind is settling and it triggers a disposition, oh, I'm beginning to understand. This is great. Because that intention, like it's the intention to imagine who you're going to become if you just keep doing what you're doing because it's really working now. right? But you can notice that joy, that intention, that lightness, and you can just let it move 
without feeling the necessity to construct or do anything. So this is what we mean by not creating karma. Literally, or not literally, technically, karma is when an intention gets strummed, right? so there's an underlying latent disposition, certain conditions are arising in the present moment that trigger that, strum that, latent, then it manifests as a, a will to do something. Right, the volition to do something. And um, then there's a moment where either karma will be made or no karma will be made. Right? So a Buddha, an awakened person, knows how to not make any karma, right? Knows how to be empty so that the latent because Buddhas, awakened beings, they have latent tendencies. Right? They have, they're dragging along some inconceivable amount of karma. So enlightened beings aren't without karma. It's just that the karma that gets triggered, old dispositions, latent tendencies that get triggered, find no mind there to express itself through. What they find is emptiness, right? clarity, a mind that understands this is just a feeling, a will to do, a tendency to do something, to say something, to think something. But what clarity, what wisdom understands is that there can be an awareness that it's like this now without having to repress the intention or without being pushed to you know, identified and acting out the intention to think, to speak, or to do something. Does that make sense? So that's really the dynamic of our practice, is that we're, we have some, all of us, some frustration of coming on a retreat or living our life just to get comfortable. Right? So it's really clear if you've come here for five days, you at least have some space in your mind. right? Because you wouldn't come here thinking you're going to have a comfortable experience. Some people do. They think it's like a spa. But I know it's not true for you people. You know, where there's... Back actually in the early days, Gail will remember this, in the early days of TCVC, a couple people on the retreat were masseuses and they'd set up one of the rooms. Remember that? (laughs) Were you here when we used to do that? Because Gail was one of the founders of TCVC, the local Vipassana group, and then she went away for 10 years in the 90s. Um, And there's not like that that would be wrong, but this idea that when our body hurts, that we should leave the meditation hall and go get a massage. Or when the mind hurts, you know, we should go do something. Because what we're learning is to be patient. Like all of, we're learning that just because intentions arise doesn't mean that somebody has to repress them or act them out. That there's another way to be with intention, which is to be empty. Just And experiment, of course, with relatively not charged intentions. Like you get in your car at the end of the evening and there's that programmed intention to turn the radio on. Right? Just that habit turn the radio on. Now that, for most of us, that's not going to be a hugely charged intention. So 
So then we can notice, we can practice being empty, not suppressing it, not judging the intention as bad. It's nature. That intention is exactly as it should be in that moment. There's nothing wrong with the intention to turn the radio on. It will just have karma. right? To take that intention personally or to personally think that intention is bad creates karma. So it may be relatively more wholesome karma to say, you know what, I'm not going to do it tonight. And then you sort of like force yourself not to turn it on. So you're repressing it or suppressing it. Let's call it suppression. So it's wholesome. I'm not going to do it. Like that might be better than turning the radio on. But even better is to get very interested with a lot of humility in the desire to turn it in, in that volitional desire to turn on the radio and to realize in flashes, like the insight may not be strong enough to be resonant, but just little flashes that that intention is not self. And you'll know when the mind realizes that in just a moment because all of a sudden there won't be a problem. Having the intention isn't a problem. Isn't a problem that you have to suppress? Isn't a problem you have to act out and then get the karma of it? It's just not a problem. Whether you turn on the radio or nothing matters. That's the... That's where the mind has a glimpse that happiness isn't about conditions, isn't about using intention to get what we want. See that our mind has gotten into this dark habit of becoming dependent on intention to get what we want. And we do it with our spiritual practice the intention to be enlightened, which is relatively useful because it gets us in the vicinity of realizing the intention to be enlightened can be abandoned or can be um, seen as not-self, just an intention, just something. And it is a, it is a feeling, right? Because, because these intentions have a charge, they feel like something. So we have to be willing to feel the tug on the heart, to say something, to do something, to think something, and to get interested in that. So you might take a look at this short four paragraph, five paragraph um, thing on releasing the heart with patience. Ajahn Soshito talks about what I've spoken about tonight, and we'll keep coming back to this in different from different angles over the next few nights. But let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words before our walking time. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org